The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. It is 22nd of March, 2017. The time is 5.07 p.m., and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Nick Weaver. And I'm Marissa Jordan. This week, we're bringing you a spe- or a, an episode of Eye on the Triangle. I'm so excited to share what our contributors have created this week. Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. This week, he reviews the film The Hudsucker Proxy. Will Mayo brings you Taste of the Triangle. He reviewed a restaurant called David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar on Hillsborough Street. And Nick brings you his Modest Mouth review. This week, he did a a special for today called Top 5 Albums to Get High To. Yep, a uh, a fun one that is. Uh, Jake Winters, uh, as we said, brings you Snowverated with uh, Hudsucker Proxy. And Colleen Kinnon-Ferguson brings you her Legal Work podcast. This week, she discusses Personal Protection. But first, Marissa brings you an interest piece on fake news. If you followed the political scene even a little bit this past year, you've probably heard the term fake news thrown around. You may have even seen it yourself reposted on social media or texted to you from your friends. But what exactly is fake news, where did it come from, and how can it affect our current political climate? Stay tuned for the next few minutes, and I'll explain it to you. According to PolitiFact, a website that fact-checks U.S. politics and the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, fake news is made-up stuff masterfully manipulated to look like credible journalistic reports that are easily spread online to large audiences willing to believe the fictions and spread the word. Some great examples of fake news are Hillary Clinton ran a sex ring from a pizza shop and Obama flashed an entire plane. Yes, that is one my mom actually saw on her Facebook feed. Fake news has always existed. I mean, even here at Eye on the Triangle, we occasionally receive dubious emails on how to solve the energy crisis from 7th grade dropouts. But in light of the 2016 election, fake news has skyrocketed. The difference is the outrageous conspiracies used to be confined to small internet chat boards and now we have Facebook as a platform for communication. Many of these fake news articles have been passed through Facebook since it's so easy to share and to share to large audiences. In addition, many of these posts come to the top of your Google search now thanks to how much traffic they are receiving. But why would so many sites create fake news in the first place? The answer is simple. Money. During the 2016 election, articles with provocative titles earned more hits, which led to more money for the publisher. One man who ran a fake news site out of Los Angeles made ten dollars to $30,000 a month off his fake news publishing alone. Fake news entrepreneurs are not the only ones to blame for the rise of fake news. We are living in a post-truth society, which is to say objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. That doesn't sound too far off from what we saw during the 2016 election. 
During the election, Trump was caught in more lies than Hillary was. Trump received 70% mostly false ratings compared to Clinton's 14% from PolitiFact, but Americans were still more likely to trust Trump. Now, I'm not saying politicians on either side are super trustworthy, but that's a big gap. Now for the punchline. Fake news is ultimately scary because people who believe fake news will believe lies from a politician, and no one should have that much power. In addition, it's our duty as citizens to do our research and react accordingly, regardless of our political affiliation. If Wikipedia wasn't good enough for my ninth grade history essay, USA News Flash shouldn't be your sole source of political news. Let's start checking our facts again as a country, and do me a favor, please stop sharing some random college girl's political blog on your Facebook feed. This has been Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. You're listening to Legal Work, a podcast offering legal information for legal informative purposes only, recorded from the production room of WKNC on the campus of North Carolina State University. My name is Colleen Keenan Ferguson. I'm the podcast manager for WKNC, and Legal Work, my podcast, spelled work as in twerk, is my effort to help educate myself and other young adults like myself who may be misinformed about how the law works in specific cases and under specific circumstances. Did you know that one in five women will be stalked annually? That's a horrifying statistic, but it is a sad reality for many people in America who find themselves the victim of sexual assault, domestic violence, harassment, and stalking. There are steps you can take to protect yourself, though, if you do find yourself the victim or survivor of stalking domestic violence or sexual assault. This episode is all about personal protective orders. We have two special interviews, one with Michael Avery of University Student Legal Services, and the second is a secret anonymous guest with experience in personal protective orders. Stay tuned. My name is Michael Avery. I'm an attorney with Student Legal Services here at North Carolina State University. What options do victims and survivors of stalking, domestic violence, and sexual assault have? Well, if the victim is in immediate danger, we always recommend that they call 911. Law enforcement or the magistrate's office can criminally charge an assailant. Aside from calling 911, if you can get to a safe space, certainly do that. Call someone you trust for emotional support. You can also contact your nearest rape crisis center. Um, that would be Interact around here, and we'll get into more about Interact later. So what exactly is a protective order? Well, a protective order is a civil matter which does not result in a criminal record. However, the order is public. Violations of the order can result in a criminal charge. Petitioning for a civil protective order can be done concurrently with a criminal charge. So if, if um, the assailant is charged with a crime, say assault on a female, sexual assault, something of that nature, the, the victim can seek a protective order at the same time. The order also requires the assailant, the defendant, not to assault, threaten, abuse, follow, harass, or interfere with the plaintiff. That would certainly be the reason for going to yeah. get one. The order can also require that the defendant stay away from the plaintiff's home, place of employment, school, or other place that the court may deem appropriate. The assailant defendant may also be precluded from possessing, receiving, or purchasing a firearm for the effective period of the order, usually one year. The defendant may also be required to surrender to the sheriff all firearms, ammunition, and gun permits in the defendant's care, custody, possession, ownership, or control. 
Could you walk us through the different kinds of protective orders available? Well, first, there's going to be a criminal protective order as a part of the bond for the defendant. So if the assailant is charged with a crime, the state can require that defendant to stay away from the uh, victim. But what normally our office is involved in is the civil aspect of this. So there's um, 50 Bs, 50 Cs, and and a small uh, minority of protective orders under 50D, and I'll explain them all. 50B is probably the most prevalent protective order that we get. It's called the Domestic Violence Protective Order. And in order to get one, you have to show that the defendant attempted to or intentionally caused bodily injury to the plaintiff, or the defendant's actions placed the plaintiff in fear of imminent serious bodily injury or harm. It's a subjective standard, so it's not a reasonable person standard where, you know, would a reasonable person be in fear of this? It's whether that individual victim was in fear of the defendant's actions. The 50C order, we call it a no-contact order, and that is when there is um, non-consensual sexual contact or there's stalking, which um, is defined as on more than one occasion, following or otherwise harassing another person without legal purpose with the intent to place that person in reasonable fear, either for the person's safety or the safety of the person's immediate family or close personal associates, or cause that person to suffer substantial emotional distress by placing that person in fear of death, bodily injury, or continued harassment, and that, in fact, causes that person substantial emotional distress. Lastly, there's also the 50D, which is a lifetime protective order for victims of registered sex offenders. So the defendant in that case has to be convicted of a criminal offense in North Carolina or a substantially similar crime in another state, which requires registration in this state on the sex offender registry. What does the process look like for getting a personal protective order against somebody? Okay, so for the um, for the 50Bs, the 50Cs, first step is to get the ex parte order, which is uh, a temporary order. So there's an ex parte hearing for the p- temporary protective order. A judge will hear only from the plaintiff petitioner, so the victim, uh, and determine whether the temporary order should be granted. Interact is a rape crisis center. They can electronically file the petition for the protective order and conduct the hearing for a temporary order through Skype, so the individual doesn't even have to go into the courtroom to do that. After the ex parte is granted, or even if it's not, they will still generally schedule a full hearing, which provides the defendant the opportunity to contest the allegations against him or her. The hearing usually takes place within about 10 days from the ex parte hearing or within seven days from the date that the defendant is served, whichever occurs later. The ex parte order will not be enforceable until the defendant is served with a copy of the order. There's some confusing language in the 50B statute, which says that personal protective orders can only be granted against heterosexual partners. So is it possible to take out a personal protective order against somebody of the same sex? It depends on their circumstances. Um, the way that the law is written, uh, it says that there has to be a personal relationship between the parties. And that that's defined as whether they were current or former spouses. So we have, you know... Um, homosexual couples can be married now, so if they're married, they they would be eligible for a 50B. Um, some of the other definitions of personal relationship are persons of the opposite sex who live together or have lived together, um, people who are related as parents and children, um, including others acting in loco parentis to a minor child or as grandparents and grandchildren, um, people who have a child in common, so um, a homosexual couple who adopted could do this as well, our current or former household members, so that's another way that we can get a homosexual couple in, or the victim in, or our persons of the opposite sex who are in a dating relationship or have been in a dating relationship. So it's it's not completely open, but there are ways that we can get um, a homosexual per- victim to come on in and get a 50B. How long do these protective orders last? 
It um it lasts generally for one year. All right, and it can be renewed uh, generally for a two-year period. It is extremely important that if a victim ends up getting um, a 50B or a 50C, that if they want to have that order extended, that they file that motion for the extension of the order, for the renewal of the order, prior to its expiration. If they fail to timely file that motion, then they will have to start from scratch by actually petitioning for a a whole new order, and that is much more difficult than getting the renewal. So it is very, very important that if you have an order, that you want it to be extended, that you file that motion for the renewal before it expires. Get it well, get it done on time. You know, just file it before it expires. Otherwise, you're starting from scratch and it is much more difficult to get the order than it is to get an order renewed. Are there any other actions or claims a survivor can make? Well, if there was any kind of damages, say that there was uh, personal injury, property damage, uh, emotional distress, they can file a civil claim for that. Um, and they would do that if it's a claim under $10,000. They can bring it in small claims court, assuming that the defendant is also a resident of Wake County. Um, otherwise, it would have to go to uh, district court. And if there was any kind of personal injury, property damage, and the defendant, the assailant, is charged with a crime, the court can actually require that defendant to pay restitution to the victim. Are there any special options available to survivors in regards to their housing and landlords? Well, if the order is granted, they better not go anywhere near that place. (laughs) Otherwise, they may be sitting on a bench in the jail. But otherwise, um, even without the permanent order, if if there's an ex parte that is granted, uh, the landlord can be required to change the locks. That is a requirement by North Carolina law. So if you have an ex parte order, you can approach your landlord and, and request that they change the locks, and they are obliged to do so. Unfortunately, they are not obliged to pay for that. So if you make that request, you may be responsible for paying for the changing of those locks. Now, if the order is is granted, then uh, within 30 days notice, the victim has to give their landlord 30 days notice. But once that is done, they can terminate their lease. So if the assailant, the defendant knows where they live, that victim can give their landlord 30 days notice and be out of that lease regardless of when it's supposed to expire. Could you explain to us exactly what an ex parte is? Well, it's the first step. Um, It's just the temporary order because, you know, we realize that these are emergency situations and we need to address them in in an expedited manner. So um, normally when somebody is accused of something, we give them the right to face their accusers. That's how our law works. But because this is an emergency situation, we allow the, the victim to come into court and request this temporary order before that defendant has had the opportunity to state their case and, and confront that accuser. So we just do it as an emergency basis, and that's why it only has uh, it's valid for 10 days or until the defendant is served. Um, sometimes it can be continued, but we try to get these things heard within 10 days of the temporary order being issued. So if a student wishes to seek out a personal protective order against another student, they can't do that at University Student Legal if they're both students at North Carolina State. Is that correct? That That's true. Um, you know, we it's a conflict of interest for our office to um, provide help to one student that would be detrimental to another student. So so we don't uh, provide representation where it's student on student, but we do encourage those students to come in and see us because we can at least provide them with, with some resources that would help them. But yes, if it's student on student, uh, we would be prohibited from providing representation on behalf of either party. However, if the other party is a non-student, um, we can provide representation both 
seeking a protective order and in very rare cases, but sometimes we do get a defendant that comes in and if they are a student and the plaintiff is a non-student, we would represent them as well. Could you give us a few of the resources available to survivors of stalking, domestic violence, and sexual assault? We've got a bunch. So, <laughs> well, of course, there's student legal services. So if you have any questions about the legality of this kind of stuff, come and see us. There's the university's police department. So if there is an emergency situation, certainly call 911. Get the university's police department involved. There's the university's office of student conduct, where victims can report a relationship violence, sexual misconduct, or stalking. And online reporting is available. And I assume we can put like a link in this podcast so people can access that. There's the university's counseling center, which uh, provides in-person or over-the-phone counseling in a confidential, non-judgmental environment. And there's the uh, university's Women's Center, which provides confidential support to students of all genders, gender expression, and sexual orientation who are survivors of sexual and relationship violence, including stalking. Now, outside the university, um, there's additional resources, including Interact, which I've referenced before. Interact provides a 24-hour crisis line. They also provide court advocacy for clients involved in civil or criminal cases as a result of experiencing domestic violence or sexual assault. They also have a residential shelter, which provides safe housing and a comprehensive program of counseling and advocacy to women and their children who are escaping violent relationships. Aside from Interact, there's also the Wake County Clerk of Courts Domestic Violence Unit, which is located on the fifth floor of the Wake County Court courthouse, and it's responsible for assisting the public, answering questions, and helping victims of domestic violence with regard to protective orders, court dates, show cause hearings, protective order extensions, and protective order violations. Lastly, I want to mention also the Wake County District Attorney Victim Services Program, which is located on the eighth floor of the Wake County Justice Center. They will ensure that crime victims receive information, assistance, and support as their cases progress through the criminal justice system. All I can say is if uh, you are the victim of domestic violence and you have questions about this stuff, um, please call Student Legal Services, 919-515-7091. You can schedule an appointment to speak to one of our attorneys. All of us are experienced with these issues, and we'd be happy to help you. I'm special anonymous guest. Thank you for having me. Which personal protective order did you seek out? Oh, I can talk about that real quick. Well, 50B is are the ones where you only qualify for those to request those if you were in a relationship or lived or like was related to the person that you want to have the order against. But 50C is for everyone else that like isn't related to you or never dated to you or anything like a personal connection like that. Um, so yes, I had a 50C, and the most, the hardest part was, I did it here at the university, or, I did it at a university, using our student legal services, and what is difficult is, if it's against another student, if you want to take the order out on another student, you can't do it, and you have to go through, um, your own legal experience, it makes sense why they can't do it student versus student but that was definitely difficult and then another difficult part is just the long process of doing things through the court system very bureaucratic and it's i understand that you have to go through 
like more than I guess it's not called a trial, but you have like several different court dates, and I get it's to be thorough because first you have to be approved to even like set the order, and then there's the day where it can either be approved or denied, and that's when you either go on trial or you settle with whoever you're having the order against. And that was definitely the hardest part, just because no matter what town you live in, the court is going to be packed always, and so just having to get there promptly and then just having to go through the system even when it's clear that you should get it is just kind of frustrating but i understand having to have a system in place well our, ours were approved for you have it approved for the trial is kind of how it works yeah it's like a little confusing and i don't know like the correct like jargon to use for it but then once you have a return date it's like after you file you get like a date if you were approved and that is when you go to trial or if you settle with the person then the two or however many are involved don't actually have to like show the receipts from one another it's just like we under it's like a mutual understanding and then you agree on probably something less than what you were hoping for but it's about the same and that's normally between your attorneys that's another thing i realized like going through this process without an attorney is possible but i'm sure it would be very emotionally and physically draining because it's just the system is literally not designed for people to succeed without an attorney or a legal representative so that would be very difficult. I also encourage, if you live in the Triangle area, we have a nonprofit organization called Interact, which provides um, legal guidance. And I'm not sure if they give, if you can get an attorney from there, but you can definitely get the information to make your experience smoother. I didn't use them, but we, um, I almost had to. So I did a lot of um, research. What kind of evidence were you required to bring in for your case? Yes, that is actually, I don't know why I didn't even bring this up for the first question. That is definitely the most exhausting part. It makes sense that there has to be evidence against a person in order for them to be seen as like guilty in the law. I do understand that, but it's just very draining, especially if it's a protective order against somebody. You obviously went through some type of stuff to get to that point, and um... Yeah, so the evidence portion is in that return date hearing I was talking about. That's like after you file and you get, you can either go to trial or just settle or something of that nature. That's when you bring all of your evidence and a lot of the times you don't even end up having to use it because trial takes so long and most people don't go on trial since it's like a packed courthouse 24-7. They just end up settling. But it takes... Any form of whatever, like if it were, it was like harassing phone calls, emails, voicemails, actual like in-person threats, you can document how many times that had happened. If you have any witnesses, people can be subpoenaed, I think is the word. Um, so if anybody, if your friends were involved or any, if it happened at a university and any um, staff was involved, they could actually be asked to come to that hearing and testify on your behalf. But the evidence can just take any form of whatever the harassment or um, behavior was that made you want to get the protective order. You just, most of it has to be like printed out and be like physically presented. Um, but there is a lot of having to remember that to testify for yourself and then to show the judge. A lot of organizing. A shout out to University Student Legal Services of any university. <laughs> This might be a dumb question, but do you feel safer now that you have a protective order? That is actually not a dumb question. That is a great question. 
do I feel safer? Yes and no. Um, I definitely feel safer in the aspect that if it is broken, there are consequences. Like, if the order is broken by the person I have it against, they can be held in contempt for up to however many days. I think it might be a week, and that's just kind of like jail. It's not like jail, jail. I think it's just like court jail or something like that. But then after that, you do have to just go through the same process. So it can be broken like numerous times and the person just be held in contempt every time. And then you just have to re like get it reinstated every time. So that is a little bit exhausting. But the fact that there are legal consequences now and that a court of law decided that <laughs> they were in your favor and not the person that the orders against was guilty makes me feel safer and i think it probably makes a lot of people feel safer there just aren't as many extreme consequences as most people assume that there would be but i think it might be different in other cases like with a 50b i think it's a little bit more like you could yeah you could be like arrested for those and um which makes sense because that's like normally a physical danger but um yeah the most important part of if you want to feel safer with your personal protective order is to just let the right people know like not to actually broadcast it to as many people as you can um which i mean you can if you want to there's nothing like illegal about that but just Keep it on the DL for those, like, who know, so that they are aware and try to maintain spaces without whoever the order is against, and to have a copy of it with you at all times. Um, we were advised, when I went through my experience, to have one in my car, in my, where I work, in my book bag, like, at my house, just wherever I am, so that if it is broken, in any of those places by that person, I can just call the police and show them the order, and we don't have to go through any other extra stuff. It is a very unique scenario. My most, if you just have a stalker, like a literal stalker, yeah, just a stranger, or a stalker is actually just anyone who you don't have those, like, intimate or, like, family relationships with, and so, um, that would be a 50C. And a lot of people do laugh at it, and just because we use the word stalker like it's nothing, like in just like casual slang usage of it. And I used to just be like, stalker awareness, like what? That's like people hiding behind bushes. But it's way more than that. A lot of things can qualify as stalking, and it is very valid. And if you're experiencing it, you are valid in trying to get help against it. <laughs> and that doesn't mean somebody like physically stalking you on the way home or something, which does happen a lot, but it's also like, Repeated phone calls, voicemails, emails, text messages, just online protections. I can actually elaborate a little bit on that. I am no legal counsel, but within 50Cs and 50Bs, they have now added amendments to it where it does protect, like, like to break it, you can't contact the person directly, indirectly, or through a third party. And that, so that also includes, like, any internet activity, because cyberstalking is actually, like, a very, like, common offense and is now included in, like, most, like, modern legal things. Like, 50Cs and 50Bs now include cyberstalking and cyber harassment within, like, the context of what can be, like, what can have an order against it. And so they actually clearly stated that when I was in court actually getting my 50C back that wasn't to be allowed like no emailing calling voicemails texting letters <laughs> mail like yeah so it's cool that it's 
like law things and legal things are staying up to date with the times and because i mean what sucks is that somebody had to go through that before it was added and then had to go through like the experience of having to prove that it's like a real thing but i'm so glad it is just because the internet can be used for very awful and evil things as we know like cyberbullying but cyber stalking is just as legit and just as valid so stalker awareness week is real one in five women will be stalked annually in the United States, but you can protect yourself. It is a very exhausting and emotionally draining process, especially as it is normally used because somebody was harassing you or making you feel unsafe, and so you do have to relive a lot of the things that you want the order to be against. But in the end, I do not regret having to go through any of it. I wish it could have been a little bit easier, but that would take modifying an entire system that's been in place for hundreds of years but it is worth it and if you are seeking one out it can be it can sound nice to just quit everything and try to like fend for yourself but in the end it is better to have to attempt to have the law on your side and have it like legally mandated that this person can't be near you there there is safety within it with all of its flaws there is like more added safety and validation of what has happened to you. Yeah, that a court of law decided that I was right. Like, that is one of the best feelings, but it's also just, it's just so much stuff. Like, use the resources that are with you if you are at a university, or if you are not at a university, most places do have an organization like Interact that we have discussed, like just nonprofit legal counsel and help because people do recognize that out-of-pocket legal help is very expensive and most of the time very inaccessible to people who are not of like upper middle class and onward. <laughs> Other than to power through whatever order you are trying to get against somebody or multiple people, you can do it, you are valid in what has happened to you and try to look up as many resources as possible if there are people around you trying to help you because I'm sure that's very difficult. I love you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed listening to Legal Work. If you have any pressing legal concerns, you should contact a lawyer. If you're a student at North Carolina State University, you should contact Student Legal Services because they're included in your student fees. Already paid for lawyers. But if you just have a topic that you'd like us to address, please send your suggestions to podcast at wknc.org. Legal Work's opening theme is Boulevard St. Germain by Jazar. And the closing theme is Hustle by Kevin MacLeod. Both artists and their work can be found on freemusicarchive.com. Hey, this is Michael Avery, attorney with Student Legal Services, and when I'm not busy lawyering, I'm listening to WKNC 88.1. Without further ado, hello and welcome. Today we'll be doing a little something different. Instead of a review, I'll be bringing you a list of my personal top five choices for albums to listen to while high. Keep in mind that this is mainly a humorous article, so don't take it too seriously. With that said, here we go. Everyone's got that one go-to album that, if they were to ever get high, would be the first thing to play on their Spotify, CD, or record player. As a result, making a definitive list of the top five stoner albums would be completely impossible. Instead, the following list will be a personal recommendation of my favorite rock albums to listen to while high. 
These are listed in no particular order, but instead with the intent to find a different album for each type of stoner. Some are mellow, and some are less mellow. Either way, hopefully there's a little something for everyone here. Starting with number 5, we begin on a mellow note. L1011's debut album, L1011, is perhaps the perfect mix of chair-melting and hype-causing. An instrumental work, L1011 features clean, looping, fretless guitars that slide peacefully up and down the neck. The bass comes in with the steadiness of a loose tap dropping into a bucket. The result is a sensation of heavy weightlessness, familiar to all friends of Mary Jane. As the steady hum of the guitar continues, one can almost close their eyes and imagine that they're a leaf floating back and forth as it falls gently and peacefully to the ground. Of course, what would a rock album be if it didn't eventually jump into third gear with a touch of driving distortion? It's a gentle descent turned into an energetic climb, sure to instill the average rock enthusiast or stoner with the belief that they can dance. As quickly as it comes, however, the distortion fades, leaving the listener back at square one, only to repeat the process when the next track rolls around. Number four on the list is a concurrent favorite in the psych rock scene by weathered veterans Tame Impala. Currents, released in 2015, is a modern classic that hits all the right notes. But the classic synths, lo-fi production techniques, and trippy but mildly clean guitars are enough to transport the listener to a whole nother world. This album is perfect for when you can't stop thinking about the things that are going wrong in life, even while under the influence of mind-altering substances. Currents engulfs the listener in a wave of echoes and delays, evoking memories and sentiments that in a normal context would be a fair bummer, but with the help of some smooth vocals and well-done effects work, makes all of that seem far away, though omnipresent. The lyrical work on the album is all about embracing the pain of life and accepting one's flaws, and if you can listen to it while high and not feel like a changed person, then you were never listening to begin with. Coming in at number three is Two by Unknown Mortal Orchestra, a seminal work of lo-fi brilliance. Two brings that warm fuzz in the background to complement the warm glow of the world around the listener, while the fresh haze of skunks still lingers in the air. The album is as clean as lo-fi gets without losing the charm of the genre, featuring virtually no distortion whatsoever and instead a variety of unique guitar and vocal effects. Groovy doesn't begin to describe its vibe. Two can make the listener feel as though they're sitting in the sun even on a snowy winter day. It's a bright, upbeat album that never comes off as saturn, and in fact does so while sporting some fairly depressing lyrical content at times. Two is the topper to a light high. A little extra buzz, so to speak. It won't take you to another place, but instead elevates your current environment to being of the perfect atmosphere. The lyrics may be slightly depressing, but if the listener is already floating, then they'll most likely never notice. Two is a bodily experience to be enjoyed and savored, much like the delicious brownie that you may or may not have consumed an hour ago. Of course, not every stoner wants a sweet treat of an album, and number two on the list is in fact quite the opposite. Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd is a full meal to the average opener of a can of bees. It is a heavy dish that forces the listener to embrace the cosmic truth of reality, whatever it may be. Dark Side of the Moon is the quintessential deep-thinking stoner album, and has been for generations. It's the same album that your dad most likely got high and listened to in college. The album forces the listener to grapple with the concepts of death, age, their role in the universe, relationships, and more. It is a thorough journey through space and time, and listening to it all the way through while stoned is a rite of passage, a sacred ritual towards becoming truly alive. Or perhaps that's an exaggeration. At any rate, Dark Side of the Moon lives up to its name, being both highly illuminative and entirely dark. It is recommended that the average enjoyer of garden plant holding headwear, pothead, work their way up to this album, as it's no easy ride. Finally, number one on my personal list is Quebec by Ween. Truthfully, any album by Ween would serve its purpose on this list, as they're all incredibly strange and wonderful. 
Quebec is merely the greatest of all the Ween albums, and as such should be enjoyed immensely when distressing from midterms with the aid of all natural herbal remedies. This album is perhaps a bit unconventional for a lineup of this kind, as it is not a consistent ride throughout. It is instead a collection of bizarre and beautiful individual works, as is the case with most every Ween album save 12 Golden Country classics. This album will make the listener laugh, cry, and rock out, all on different tracks. It is touching and emotional, silly and fun, and profound and motivating. Quebec is not the album to be enjoyed because one is high, but instead enhanced greatly by this factor. It is indescribable in its profundity and brilliance, though it may be seen as weird by the layman. And indeed it is, but it is also so much more. I would encourage you to find out for yourself. Praise be to Bugnish. Thus concludes this recommendation. With the variety presented, no purveyor of the shticky icky should be left wanting. Of course, most already have their preference of music to play, but should you find yourself with an abundance of both time and buds, perhaps this list will be able to assist. Thanks again for listening in. I've been Nick with Eye on the Triangle. You're listening to 88.1 WKNC, and this is Taste of the Triangle. I'm your host, Will Mayo, and for those of you who have not heard my segment before, Taste of the Triangle seeks to inform you of the rich food culture in Raleigh and the surrounding area. For Diversity Week, I chose to cover David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar. Though it has a simple name, David's offers a variety of Eastern dishes that are more authentic than the alternatives that come in a takeout box. I was able to interview the owner head chef of David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar, as well as his events manager and a server. The three had a lot to say about the restaurant, but one thing they certainly agreed upon was the incredible quality of their dumplings. It's our dumpling, a whole lot different than then the dumpling in the market is all handmade, you know, hand roll. We make our own dough from square and wrap it individually, single piece. We recently were named top dumplings in Wake County with the annual Indie Food Awards, Reader's Choice. If you think you've had a good dumpling, just wait and try ours. They're the best. The first voice you heard was David Mao. He's the owner and head chef of David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar. David first came to the United States when he befriended a GI during the Vietnam War. Events manager Kim Kyle recaps the story. Hal wanted to learn how to make dumplings and David wanted to learn mathematics and to learn to speak the English language. Hal sponsored David to move to America and they have been next door neighbors now for 40 some years. So they became friends over dumplings and David's family's restaurant in Vietnam. Hal is not David's only neighbor. David makes it a point to be a neighbor to the community that he has become a part of. To reflect that in the business sense, Ms. Kyle says they do a lot of private events. We're hosting wedding rehearsal dinners, receptions, prom events. David just wants to remain an active part of his community that he has lived in in the Cameron Village area for 40 years. When David first became a part of this community in the 1970s, he realized Raleigh did not have a niche for Asian food. So he created the Mandarin House, a kind of typical Chinese restaurant. In the 70s, when I had the Mandarin House, and I studied with typical like American Chinese food, or like chow mein, chop suey, egg fuyong. This was successful for him for quite a while, but towards the turn of the century, there was a shift in American palates to crave something a little more authentic. From then on, try to, you know, introduce, you know, the, the more Chinese food in America, 
is not American Chinese. Chinese food, you know, you, we can serve without rice uh, uh, or soy. <laughs> and uh, Chinese food, we will not use a lot of butter or, or cheese. I just try to uh, introduce better Asian food to the American public. While maintaining traditional values, David tries to create a lot of unique dishes. One such dish is his take on the traditional lion head. A uh, lion head that we saw over here is, is my own creation, you know, like a meatball, but uh, infused with scallop inside uh, the meatball. And then uh, we serve with a Chinese uh, baby broccoli, you know, and it tastes real good. And a lot of people try it and they do like it. I have not personally tried the lion head, but the expansive menu at David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar has a lot of interesting options. The staff does a really good job of making these options available to the common person. Server Eston Dickinson explains the methodology behind this. I try to explain the menu so that it's custom to what the customer is looking for, but also open them up a little bit to something they may not have tried before. The staff has certainly steered me towards many tasty choices. A couple of my favorites are the Malaysian curry noodle soup and the green papaya salad. So the next time you decide to order takeout, maybe reconsider and pop by David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar just east of Pullen Road on Hillsborough Street. A vast menu, a warm and welcoming staff, and authentic choices make David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar another tasty slice of the Triangle's culinary pie. This has been Taste of the Triangle. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, this is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film The Hudsucker Proxy. The Hudsucker Proxy was written by the Coen brothers, along with their frequent collaborator Sam Raimi. I have looked at another film by the Coen brothers before, which you may remember as being Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar definitely isn't a far cry away from this film, but I think that The Hudsucker Proxy was ever so slightly more enjoyable. After watching this movie, I realized a lot about the way in which Hail Caesar was meant to be viewed. Both movies don't take the usual route of analyzing characters' lives and personalities, but instead use the characters as a tool in order to draw a caricature of an industry or idea. This idea is frankly extremely refreshing, as usually even in movies that show the corruption of an industry, characters' lives become the main focus. This movie plays more like a fictional dramatization of how the author views the real world. And viewing it from this point really makes the movie hilarious. But if you don't know how to take it from that perspective, it becomes pretty boring. You look for development in the character where there is none, and miss the world changing around him. And when I say that there is no character development, I really do mean none. The characters are not the focus of this movie, and that is apparent. This is also what threw me off from it at first, and really the same goes for Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar definitely has a more interesting characters, and honestly, that makes it a better movie in a way. This movie may even have convinced me to change my score on Hail Caesar, which I'm usually very opposed to doing. Because the movie is made by the Coen brothers, going in it is very hard for me not to have expectations. I expect the filming to be great and I expect the characters to feel alive and full of emotion. Of course, even though the characters didn't develop extremely well throughout the story, the Coen brothers' habit of working with well-known actors played its role in making even just the performances entertaining. It's important to note when talking about directors and actors that really every actor's performance has something to do with the director that they're working with. So the Coen brothers get credit here as well. The main actor, Tim Robbins, is probably best known for his role in The Shawshank Redemption. He plays Andy Dufresne. 
I hadn't seen him in anything else beside the Shawshank Redemption, and I was wondering throughout the whole movie who it was. Well, as in the Shawshank Redemption, his performance has hardly any flaws. The only thing that could really be said is that he overacted at some parts and made it feel a little cheesy, but that is who his character was. An actor trying to fit a role he was hardly prepared for. It took me quite a while after watching this movie to come to have some kind of appreciation for it. I wondered for a long time why the Coen brothers would make a movie like this. They make such great movies, and a few among their films just seemed like duds to me. Why weren't these movies good? Why would they waste time making a film if they didn't see it developing into something amazing like many of their other films? I thought maybe everyone just has a bad day, but it seems to me directors and writers like the Coen brothers would realize their movie was bad and not release it before they lose $28 million on a single film, which the Hudsucker proxy did with some reports of the losses being even higher. What all this leads me to believe is that they weren't making the movie for the general public, and they were just making a different kind of movie that many directors would never make. This really is what the Coen brothers do best. They don't seem to care what audiences want and instead make art that appeals to themselves. This is truly commendable and I'm glad they do this. They have opened my eyes to a world of film possibilities I didn't realize were there. I'm sure there are many movies like this that I haven't seen before and I will look at a lot of films in a different light having seen this movie. Especially Hail Caesar, as it's so similar in style to The Hudsucker Proxy. I really did not enjoy The Hudsucker Proxy while I watched it. It was boring, and I found it hard to make it through the movie without talking about how much I wanted it to end. I stuck it out to the credits, though, and I'm glad I did. The film takes a twist at the end, and it is a spectacular one, giving the movie its real meaning and putting a period on the thesis that brought this movie to life. I come out of seeing this movie with a new perspective on film, and I thank the Crone Brothers for that. I'm going to give this movie a 3 out of 5. I can see how the majority of people did not like this film. A lot goes on, but not really much happens. I'm not too sure how to explain that sentence, but after watching, I would love to know if anyone knows what I mean. The movie had fantastic filming, writing, and acting, and is deceptively bland on the surface. Once realizing what could almost be called an extended metaphor is present throughout the film, it is far more enjoyable. It could possibly be one of the few films that is better on a second viewing. The Hudsucker Proxy is available for multiple retailers and renters online. If you want to let me know that you liked my review or have any comments or suggestions for films you'd like to hear my take on, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. Or if you want to call in, feel free to at 919-515-2400 during the show and we can chat. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snow Verated. I'm Jake Winters and I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Welcome back. You are listening to Eye on the Triangle on 88.1 WKNC. The time is 5.53, and I'm Nick Weaver. Uh, I still have no idea what that film is about that Jake reviewed. I, I, I feel like I grasped its straws just trying to understand it, but uh, apparently he enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, sounded pretty good to me. I'll actually have to check that out. All right, well, now it's time for some of your favorite segments, This Day in History. For This Day in History... In 1765, the Stamp Act was imposed on the American colonies. Some crucial American history right there. Yeah, yeah, important. In 1972, the Equal Rights Amendment was passed by Congress. Another big American history bullet. Mm -hmm. And in 2014, a mudslide in Washington State kills more than 40 people. I do not remember hearing about that, actually. Yeah, that, huh. I feel like I want to I want to look that up now, find out more about it. Maybe uh maybe our our, our listeners can go in and google that for us and uh write in some some interesting fact snippets about that and we'll talk about it next week. 
But yeah. Uh, yeah, that about does it for this week's show. Uh, thanks for joining us on this uh, this wonderful Wednesday afternoon. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs uh, at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. I'd like to thank our contributors, Will Mayo, Jake Winters, and Colleen Kinnan-Ferguson, as well as the rest of our staff here. Our intro and outro music is Connie by L1011. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Marissa Jordan. And I'm Nick Weaver, wishing you all a great Wednesday afternoon.